New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. I'm here with Jane Hirschfeld as she is the author of eight books of poetry and also the author of two superb collections of essays, the most recent of which is called Ten Windows. Her most recent poetry book is called The Beauty. And we're going to be spending the next hour together exploring the nature of beauty and also the nature of how poetry itself can transform our lives. I'm Roger Houston, and I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Jane, welcome. Lovely to be here. This, for me, Jane, this, this title, The Beauty, is both really interesting and quite provocative. Well, yes, I have to agree. Um, I, I didn't choose the title. My book's editor did. And when she uh, proposed it, she said, you know, I think if one of my authors had suggested this as a title for the book, I might have had doubts. But the more I think about it, the more I feel it fits. And when she suggested it, I felt the same way. I felt, how can you possibly make such a grand claim with a book title, especially a book which so often... Uh, revels in and investigates the absolutely ordinary and daily, even if it is investigating it perhaps for its radiance as well as its darkness. But she suggested it, I pondered it, it grew on me, and thus it came to be. You know, that makes absolute sense, speaking of the ordinary as beautiful. I'm reminded of Stendhal, actually, you know, the 19th century French novelist whose whose characters, main characters were always essentially in search of what he himself, Stendhal himself, called moments of beauty. Mm. And so whatever their ambitions in life, and they had many, his characters, whatever their ambitions, they were really at their most happy in those moments that are so fleeting and so easily forgotten where almost nothing seems to be happening. And yet, in that moment, those moments of complete ordinariness, just perhaps watching a butterfly dancing on the top of a flower, whatever it may be, but that, for Stendhal's characters, was really what constituted happiness. And he called those moments of beauty. So maybe poems themselves are also, or can also, be moments of beauty. 
Well, I think they certainly aspire to being moments in which the sense that you just described of being outside of ordinary, purposeful, uh, what's sometimes called gaining mind. Uh, we, we think that our lives are measured by our achievements, but in fact they are measured, as you have so beautifully described, by our experiences, by our saturation, by the kinds of stopping of time that poems certainly give us. A poem cannot be speed-read. A poem cannot be useful in a utilitarian sense, although I do have one poem in my entire body of work that has a very good soup recipe in it. But for the most part, what they are doing, I think, is counterbalancing the the mainstream tenor of our culture, which is uh, to to accomplish, to do, to be active, to be energetic, and to prove oneself. And one of the messages underlying all poems that move us is that we have nothing at all to prove. Absolutely. That's, I think, what uh, Mary Oliver was pointing to in her poem, Mind For. Every day I see or hear something that nearly kills me with delight. Mm-hmm. And so she goes on. And maybe it's what Dostoevsky meant, too, when he said mankind will be saved by beauty. That's an extraordinary statement. I think without the sense of the numinous, perhaps, I will, I will say, um, we can't find compassion. We can't find our connection with others. The, the root of the word numinous, I was astonished to learn when I was uh, uh, looking into it not long ago for a conversation I was having with Barry Lopez. The root of the word numinous is to nod, to agree, to say yes. And I love that. I love it for its plainness. I love it because it is gestural rather than about content. And, you know, one of the reasons I'm a little wary of leaning too much towards talking about beauty, even though my book carries that title, is because there is the undertow, which is equally important. Beauty that ignores darkness Joy that ignores grief is an illusion mm-hmm. um, and, and serves us ill. Uh, to lean too highly towards longing for affirmation and longing, longing for only the things we, we find beautiful uh, leaves out most of a human life. I would say the beauty encompasses all shades and that its opposite is not ugliness or darkness. But like any great truth, and the word truth itself almost exists without opposition, without opposite, you know. But I completely um, agree with your, your suggestion that, you know, darkness has to be there too. I mean, Seamus Heaney said, I rhyme to set the darkness echoing. Yes, that, that I can completely stand by and with. You know, I think that 
in his old age, um, Tezaf Miłosz was honored with a several-day celebration at Claremont College in Southern California. And at the end of it, he finally, person after person, spoke about his work. And at the end of it, when he came to speak himself, he thanked everybody immensely. And then he chastised the group for not speaking enough about suffering. Mm-hmm. And this is something I did speak about suffering in, in my, own, my own 20 minutes of it. But I think that it is, it is essential for us to realize that suffering leads us to beauty the way thirst leads us to water. If we are going to live, if we are going to navigate our lives, which are filled with loss and disappointment and unbalance and disarray, it is that change, which to me is the important thing. It is not the arrival because no arrivals stay. We continually move on. Life will, mm-hmm. life will give us another moment, the next moment. There's no resting on destination. There's no resting in beauty. What poems give us is a road. They give us a path. They give us a kind of, um, should I say, Google Maps to try to give it a modern metaphor or, or a recipe. They show us how under desperate circumstances it is possible to keep one's humaneness and one's sense of the possible. And for me, this sense of possibility is truly one of the things at the heart of the book of essays, of, of Ten Windows, um, to convey this sense that if you are writing a poem, if you are reading a poem, doors are flung open. And the narrowing of circumstance, even if outwardly it cannot be changed, we begin to feel on this path of poetry that our relationship to the events of our lives is always open. You wrote a poem called My Sandwich, mm. and it's on uh, page 19, I think, of your book, The Beauty. And for me, this is a perfect example of a poem which opens a moment, an apparently ordinary moment for us. And the moment itself actually becomes endless, for me at least. Would you mind reading it? My sandwich. So many things you'd not have thought of until they were given. Even the simple. A cottage cheese sandwich. A heron's contractible neck. You eat. You look. Then you look back and it's over. This life this flood, unbargained for as lasting love was, of lasting oddness. And you see, this is very much what I mean by um, the, the undertow, the undercurrent. Rather, rather than uh, saying that we seek beauty, what the poem is saying, rather, is treasure oddity. Treasure particularity, treasure the implausible cottage cheese sandwich that I was served one day. I'd never heard of a cottage cheese sandwich. And it just 
struck me. I don't know me if I come to think of it. <laughs> utterly, no, no, you, you, nobody does that. Um, but it was delicious. And that's the point, isn't it? Well, I think the deliciousness was enhanced clearly by your capacity in that moment to enter fully the experience of the sandwich. Thank you. Uh, which is why the which is where the poem surely came from. Yes. Indeed. Yes, that last word, oddness, really is the one that opens the door, really, for for me in this in this poem. I'm struck by uh, some of the themes that move through your work generally, but certainly through this book. I mean, every writer, every every poet, but every writer has their own natural voice and their own almost um, natural turning towards furrows that they will be plowing for the whole of their lives in one way or another. Uh, even though they may have many different um, expressions and detours and turns, you know. And one of those themes, it seems, in your case is, uh, of course, the, uh, you know, the, the theme that is collective to all of us, which is that of transience, of, of passing. Almost, really, almost any poem I find here is, is to do with the, the exquisite, poignant, passing of moments, experience, life. And that carries with it indeed, you were talking earlier of darkness, that really is one of the most ultimate uh, expressions of darkness, which is our imminent disappearance. And to find a way to say yes to that. Indeed, yes, and we will continue with that. I'm uh, Roger Houston. I'm here speaking with Jane Hirschfeld. You are listening to New Dimensions. I'm Roger Houston. I'm here with uh, Jane Hirschfield, the author of eight books of poetry, most recently The Beauty, and also her second volume collection of essays, Ten Windows, How Great Poems Transform the World. Jane, we were speaking just before the break of the theme of transience, and I was saying that I felt that in so many of your poems, not just in this book, but in many of your books. Uh, but in this one in particular, uh, a poem that really struck me in this case was the poem Three Mornings. 
I wonder if you would read that for us. Three mornings. In Istanbul, my ears, three mornings, heard the early call to prayer. At fuller light, heard birds then, water birds and tree birds, birds of migration. Like three knowledges, I heard them. Incomprehension, sweetened distance, longing. When the body dies, where will they go, those migrant birds and prayer calls, as heat from sheets when taken from a dryer? With voices of the ones I loved, great loves and small loves, train wheels, crickets, clock ticks, thunder, where will they, when in fragrant, tumbled heat, they also leave? I find that such a wonderful image, the heat from sheets, you know, when taken from a dryer, and then you return to it at the end like that, uh, and fragrant heat. So there's a fragrance then in, in that which passes, even as it passes. Fragrance is often what remains after something is no yes. longer with us. Yes. Uh, there's another poem in this book about um, uh, in a kitchen where mushrooms were washed, where I talk about walking into a completely empty kitchen and knowing immediately from the scent of it that someone had been in there before me washing foraged wild mushrooms. And I have to say, it was uh, the first time in my life I had experienced so clearly for myself the joy of the truffle pig. You know, <laughs> I, I had no idea that I had this capacity to, to recognize the scent of mushrooms. Uh, so may I read that? Indeed, please. In a kitchen where mushrooms were washed. In a kitchen where mushrooms were washed, the mushroom scent lingers. As the sea must keep for a long time the scent of the whale. As a person who's once loved completely, a country once conquered, does not release that stunned knowledge. They must want to be found, those strange-shaped, rising morels, clownish puffballs. Lichens have served as a lampwick, clean-burning coconuts, olives, dried salmon, sheep fat, a carcass of petrol set blazing, light that is fume and abradement. Unburnable mushrooms are other. They darken the air they come into. There's the scent of having been traveled, been taken. Mm. So this poem has in it, as so many poems do, both its ostensible subject, the event which awakened it, but also the onlying, the things that one continually thinks about. As you described, poets have things they think about. And part of what's under this poem, which I wouldn't expect a reader to consciously get at, but they might feel, is a theme which runs through this book, which is my grief at the fact that my country has been at war for such a long time. Uh, the the, the post-9-11 violence and wars 
haunt three books now. Mm-hmm. It never seems to end. And so that, that country once conquered is, is like a string to a kite that you can't quite see the kite, but perhaps you can feel the grief of a statement like that. The way that whatever we humans do to each other, we don't completely recover from, mm-hmm. whether it's in the realm of love, whether it's the realm of politics and history and cultures and traditions. So it's not the easiest poem, I think, for people to take in consciously, uh, but unconsciously it seems to speak to people. It was, it was chosen for uh, both uh, best spiritual poetry and best American poetry the year after it came out, mm. which surprised me. Mm. Um, and, and yet, of course, I felt... Ah, they're they're seeing what I hoped they would see, but didn't know if they would. One never knows what readers will understand from a poem. And I also want to say to those who are listening that you yourself don't have to know what you understand from a poem in order to understand it. Poems do their work at so many different levels. They work in our cells. They work in our bone marrows. They work in our pulses. They work in our bloodstream. And to translate that into conscious awareness is no less necessary than it is for you to fully work out the meaning of a dream. I think it was Wallace Stevens who said poetry should be almost understandable. Mm, Yes, that wonderful quote. Yes, yes. Uh, You know, the performance artist Marina Abramovich, Mm -hmm. um, she said that the, and this relates to what you've been speaking to in relation to the poem you've just read, In a Kitchen Where Mushrooms Were Washed. She said that the function of the artist in a disturbed society is to ask the right questions. Questions are, I think, the great unlocking key of our lives. Um, I've been writing a small essay that will probably have appeared by the time this this radio show is is on air, uh, titled Living by Questions. Mm. And I think the mind of questions is the mind which opens in every direction. The mind of statement is closed. Absolutely, yes. And so curiosity really is one of the engines of the creative process. Curiosity and even more subtle than that, permeability. Mm -hmm. To have a mind which listens, to have a mind which is porous to what comes to it is the beginning of the first draft, the beginning of finding what it is you want to say, what is what it is you want to explore. And later that can be shaped, but the first requirement is to listen. Your writing for me is 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 precisely the act of listening in in the beginning, in fact all the way through, but listening really to my own life's materials. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and needing those materials like bread, you know, in, in, in such a way that they reveal a texture and a shape that actually I didn't know was there at the time. And I think that's probably the case for any creative endeavor, whatever the form 
the form may be, that there's an inherent surprise that comes with that, that is born out of our own life, but we didn't know we were living it, really. In the same way that someone reading in a kitchen where mushrooms were washed may intuit something that they perhaps wouldn't consciously be aware of, and yet it rose like leaven through the poem, perhaps into, it can rise like leaven through your poem into their consciousness or into their awareness. You're speaking of war without speaking of it. Well, I'd like to um, pick up on that word you just used, surprise, because mm. it's very dear to my heart. There's a whole chapter about surprise in Ten Windows. And my feeling is that why we love poetry, whether it's writing it or reading it, is because every good poem, in fact, contains within itself something utterly unexpected, transformational, surprising. And it's sometimes rather hard to see where the surprise in a poem lies because you know, some poems appear to be very simple and it's only if you question them deeply and investigate them that you can find, ah, that's why I was moved. Surprise is a kind of lubricant in our lives. Surprise is what erases the fixed and um, suddenly shakes your worldview. So poems can have large surprises or small surprises. Certainly in this one, suddenly talking about what's burnable. Lichens have served as a lampwick. You know, where did that come from? Uh, it surprised me when I began to write about all of these things which burn and set off, set off illumination and then return to the mushrooms and say, no, they don't burn. They are an underground power. Um, so I, I, I think that we, we turn to the arts in order to learn what it is we don't yet know. Mm -hmm. We practice the arts in order to find what it is we don't yet know. If you know what poem you want to write before you've set pen to page, you might as well not write it. So when you title your book, your book of essays, Ten Windows, you are meaning then perhaps uh, doorway or windows of surprise. I mean, the, uh, are you pointing to the notion or question of the notion of surprise in in the title Ten Windows? Well, partly because that's one of the windows. But I think what I'm pointing to is the direction of um, permeability, wideness, that there is a world which comes to us. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, thieves climb in windows, uh, scents climb in windows, light climbs in windows, darkness, starlight, storms, rain. Uh, one of the things I often say to young writers when they ask, do you have one, one piece of advice? I suggest try to open the window a few inches more than is comfortable. That's a, a wonderful piece of advice for any of us, whether we're poets or not, actually. In your book, The Beauty, there was a poem that struck me as, as personally at least, as, as one that did have that kind of window opening that you've just been speaking to, uh, uh, something that somehow opens to another world within a very different world. I'm thinking of the conversations I remember most, which is on page 88. The conversations I remember most. 
the way a sweet cake wants a little salt in it, or blackness, a little gray nearby to be seen, or a pot unused stays good for boiling water. The conversations I remember most are the ones that were interrupted. Wait, you say, running after them. I forgot to ask. Night rain, they answer. Silver on the fire thorns, red berries. I'm Roger Houston, and I'm here with Jane Hirschfeld, author of the collection of poems, The Beauty, and collection of essays, Ten Windows. You are listening to New Dimensions. I'm Roger Houston. I'm here with Jane Hirschfield, author of eight books of poems, uh, the most recent of which is called The Beauty, and two collections of essays, the most recent of which is Ten Windows, How Great Poems Transform the World. And Jane, we were, you were reciting just before the break the poem, The Conversations I Remember Most, and uh, you were going to say something more about it. Yes. So what I was going to say about this poem is that we were talking earlier about uh, the hidden kites above the string of the poem. And what is not overtly on the surface of this poem is that, in fact, it is an elegy. It was written after the death, quite unexpected and abrupt, of the Irish poet Dennis O'Driscoll, who was one of my favorite people on this earth to talk to. Mm. Uh, when I first met him, we were at a, a festival together in, in London. We met by an elevator at the end of the evening. Both of us were exhausted. Uh, we didn't go speak anywhere else because each of us was hoping to get some rest. And we stood by the elevators for 45 minutes at the in our hotel talking, a conversation which kept going anytime I saw him mm. uh, in Krakow, in Dublin, uh, by email. So I was thinking of him when this poem began, and I was thinking how much this interrupted conversation was the one I was going to be longing for the rest of my life, and how you don't get to ask the unasked question. So the poem says, wait, you say, running after them. I forgot to ask. And, you know, what is the answer? Night rain, silver on the fire thorns, red berries. Existence itself is the answer. What do we have with us after the great vanishing of others, but before the great vanishing of our own lives? What remains for us is existence itself, which is always enough. I, I recently did an event. I, I'm going to sound like a great world traveler here. Um, poetry is a peculiar thing in that uh, I began as a child writing in solitude 
crafting a life raft for myself away from the eyes of others, away from social social life and persona and proving anything. I, I scribbled in the late night hours and hid things under my mattress. Um, somehow, this has led me to a life where I'm asked to go places and talk to strangers. Hmm. Uh, so, so recently, I was at a festival called the Courch Festival in Galway, Ireland, and I did a panel, an event with a marvelous Canadian fiction writer and poet, Dion Brand, and her most recent novel was called Love Enough. And we were asked to do a reading and then a conversation with the title Love Enough. And I decided for my section, since she was reading from the novel, but I was reading poems, that I would read half love poems and half poems about enough. <laughs> the idea of enough has been a great theme through my work. Mm. Book after book after book. Uh, an early poem ends, this world is a marred version of itself, lovely and flawed. It is enough. You know, the fire thorns are enough. Yes, yes. Those last two lines really lift for me the entire, the whole poem into, lift myself, really lift me into a kind of different way of feeling in some way, you know, and it's difficult to explain because it's it's a visceral sense. Mm -hmm. And what this poem does is give me a, a visceral feeling of life in this in this in this moment. Yes, enough. How relevant that is as a theme, how important that is on a theme in a culture like ours, where we're always being pressed and encouraged and pushed and driven to want more and more and more. Which is, in a way, um, the the root of so much going going awry on our planet. You know, the exploitation of resources. Um, I would like to speak for the reminding of alternative kinds of amplitude. Now, there is nothing wrong with greed for amplitude. Um, it is a question of which amplitudes we seek in a life. And I think when I say in a poem, and I hear you hearing it with that question, when I say enough, what I mean is not limitation, but I mean the recognition of depths in what is already present. The fact that any moment when our eyes are open and our lungs are breathing, infinitude is with us. And this is what I myself am greedy for. I am greedy for feeling my connection to all of existence, for the sheen of, as I look behind you, I see a stainless steel tea kettle with the light reflected in it, like an old master painting on its curved surface. Uh, there is always, when we look about us, I think, the possibilities for more depth, more feeling, more mystery, which is part of what the ending of that poem does. It, it takes the practical-minded, I forgot to ask, 
as if we could ever ask the final question. Yes. And it answers it with image. It answers it with night rain. What is more mysterious and satisfying than to wake in the night if you are under a roof and protected to the sound of night rain? And then perhaps the next thing, if we wish to go to the graduate school of life, is to wake of a night when we are out in a field and unprotected and the night rain is cold and to find that equally amplifying, equally desired. Or indeed when you wake in the morning and spill your cup of coffee. (laughs) Out of which you, Jane Hirschfeld, have created the most beautiful poem called My Task. Out of any given moment, it is possible to retrieve the numinous, (laughs) (laughs) even a spilt cup of coffee. Yes, thank you for that, Roger, and thank you for recognizing that, um, yes, it did indeed actually happen. Um, So here's the poem. My task. An idea appears. It catches against the edge of the bedside table. Coffee on the wall. Coffee on the marble tabletop. Coffee on the sheets. The idea has flown everywhere with it. Aplesia, marine snail of memory, someone may someday find in your 20,000 neurons this thought I have lost. My task, to find your less studied sister, the erasing and soapy sea sponge. Wonderful. You see how it brings, brings the whole poem, brings us round to the basic task of having to clean up the mess. <laughs> I never did remember what the idea was. Um, you know, I, it, was, it was quite literal. I, would, I often write in bed in the morning. Um, this is something that I know women writers are particularly prone to, but, but I've heard of some men who, who have done it as well. Um, Robert, Robert Bly said he always writes in his bathrobe. Um, but, you know, there I was, and I suddenly thought of something, and I was so excited that when I went to put the coffee cup down, instead, you know, it caught the edge of the table, and, and there it was. Um, and look what it, you got instead. <laughs> what I got instead was this marvelous aplesia. So, so one of my great interests is um, I have many friends who are scientists, and I love expanding the vocabulary of what you can bring into a poem. And I happen to know about this snail through which they study memory because it's got a very small brain, 20,000 neurons is a very small number of neurons. And so when they do memory studies, this poor aplesia is often the subject of, of the studies. And, you know, so the idea flew out of the poem, but, but the, the marine snail flew into it. And it seemed a fair trade to me. A fair trade indeed. Absolutely, yes. And, and, and what this shows us, like so many of these poems and so much of your work, is precisely what it is that is enough. Mm. Because what it is that is enough is, is if we're able to drink the full draft of it, this moment that we have, whatever this, whatever this moment may be. And it may be because we're actually not drinking the full draft of our moments, that we're wanting more and more and more. Very, very aptly said. And, you know, this, this hunger 
this hunger for something other than what we are, where we are, and who we are does seem to have some source in this refusal to turn and look back at exactly where we are and who we are in this present time experience. Your poems do this in so many different ways, bring us back, that is, to the depth and the, the breadth of, of the life that is possible if we are only willing to look and to listen and to sense. Another one, for example, is many-roofed buildings in moonlight, which, for me, again, open the doors and windows of my own house. Mm. Well, yes, this is this is a poem exactly speaking to one of those moments we were talking about earlier when suddenly you are plunged into the sense of amplitude. And it's very hard to describe that in words. We long for it, but it's an experience which takes place outside of language, outside of words. Um, and so it was it was interesting to me to find it embodying itself in the very building uh, that, that it occurred in. So, uh, many-roofed building in moonlight. I found myself suddenly voluminous, three-dimensioned, a many-roofed building in moonlight. Thought traversed me as simply as moths might. Feelings traversed me as fish. I heard myself thinking, it isn't the piano, it isn't the ears. Then heard, too soon, the ordinary furnace, the usual footsteps above me, washed my face again with hot water, as I did when I was a child. Mm. So there are these moments when life is both amplified and simple. And then we have to return to our regular lives, but we return changed. I'm here with Jane Hirschfield. She's the author of The Beauty, her newest collection of poems, and her collection of essays, Ten Windows, How Great Poems Transform the World. My name is Roger Houston. You're listening to New Dimensions Radio. I'm here with Jane Hirschfeld, author of the collection of poetry called The Beauty, 
and essays, Ten Windows, How Great Poems Transform the World. Jane, you were just reading uh, the poem Many Roofed Building in Moonlight, and we were just thinking of, we were just beginning to comment on those last couple of lines, last few lines, and the way in which you bring us in those, those last few lines right back into the ordinary concrete world in which, in which you found yourself in that, in that poem, the ordinary furnace, the usual footsteps above you. Um, and then those last two lines, how did they come? Well, they came because it was the actual event of it. Washed right. my face with hot water as I did when I was a child. And again, this theme which has been coming up through, throughout our conversation, what I hope the reader or listener will understand is that I was weeping. And that was why I needed to wash my face. One of the first poems in your book is, is called My Skeleton. So I suppose the, the connection between this person washing her face with hot water and, and my skeleton is that so often when I try to make sense of the world, when I try to know my own experience more deeply, what I return to is the experience of being a person in a body, being a person who has eyes, ears, nose, skin, gesture, action. And my skeleton investigates this rather directly because it's one of those things, you know, often the, the other thing that I'm looking for when I want to understand my life more fully and with more amplitude is what is it I'm not seeing? What is it I'm taking for granted? And what do we take more for granted most of the time than this marvelous construction of joints and bones that allows us to do everything else we're doing. You know, no, no forearm bone, no, no washing of the face, no cheekbones, no washing of the face. And so this poem is looking a bit, um, my skeleton is looking at directly at this unobserved aspect which has been fundamental to everything else that I do and am. And yet, in some odd way, we don't quite think of it as being us. You know, the skeleton in the ossuaries of uh, ancient Rome, we, we don't think of that as being the person. And so, I'm also trying to investigate what is self, what is not self, what is the continuity between these two which is my true um, uh, terrier nose interest in, in, in some of these things. My skeleton. My skeleton, who once ached with your own growing larger, are now each year imperceptibly smaller, lighter, absorbed by your own concentration. When I danced, you danced. When you broke, I. And so it was lying down, walking, climbing the tiring stairs. Your jaws, my bread. Someday you, what is left of you, will be flensed of this marriage. Angular wrist bones, arthritis, cracked harp of rib cage, blunt of heel, opened bowl of the skull, twin platters of pelvis. Each of you will leave me behind, at last serene. What did I know of your days, your nights? 
I who held you all my life inside my hands and thought they were empty. You who held me all your life in your hands as a new mother holds her own unblanketed child, not thinking at all. And you know, isn't this our relationship not only with our skeletons, but with existence itself, with all the world? We are not solitary. We are supported by everyone and everything, by every pebble on this planet we stand on. Um, And that intimacy of that is one of the things that for me is a promise which becomes without limit. It's the most perfect metaphor for being supported Mm. all the time. Um, But what you seem to have done here, you've created a distance or a, a, a perspective in some way so that you're able to speak to the, your skeleton. It's one of the great paradoxes, isn't it, that sometimes it is by stepping backwards that one gains a truer view of things. I mean, perspective is sometimes seen as, as in a filming camera, you know, sometimes the intimacy comes from the close-up, but sometimes the wisdom comes from pulling back the lens to see the larger and to, to look in a way which at the surface might feel analytic, but in its heart feels completely an embrace. You know, the fragility of the skeleton, its strength and its fragility— uh, we are as vulnerable to it. And, you know, again, science is is there. When I talk about the skeleton growing imperceptibly smaller, lighter, absorbed by your own concentration, this actually happens. It's why older people grow small. Um, why one loses height as one ages is that the bone actually reabsorbs mm-hmm. into itself. And this is this is that marvelous marriage between the scientific factual the experienced intimacy, um, meditation can feel like a concentration in which we are absorbed more and more into ourselves and grow more dense. And we hope more able to look outward with something approaching wisdom, something approaching perspective. Yes, perspective certainly seems to be in many of of your poems. And you seem to really take that step back off. And actually, the next poem is called My Proteins. Yes. I mean, who would think of writing a poem on their proteins? But no, Jane Hirschfield does. Uh, Because, you know, the more we're able to step back, the more we're able to see that which is usually so close to us that we cannot see it. Yeah, and it has something to do with not being held continually in the grip of the ego. Yes, Yes. And so it's another kind of seeing that is at work here. Yes. I think this is this is the quality of seeing that unearths, you know, the the un, the, the apparently unknowable or unseeable uh, in some way. This is seeing and listening too that comes from another direction. Mm-hmm. In your book in Tim Windows uh, there are many uh, essays on on a variety of different themes. Uh, One of those themes is the theme of uncertainty. Creativity itself, essentially, not just poetry, but creativity itself. Why why did you bring that up in this book of essays? 
I think that what I'm trying to do in this book, as I as I did in my last book of essays, Nine Gates, is I am looking at poems and what they do, but through that lens, I am looking at our human lives and how they work. And one of the things that poetry helps us with is to remain open to what is not sure, what is not guaranteed, what makes us feel vulnerable. Uh, we, we don't need assistance with our certainties. We need a great deal of assistance with our fears, with our anxieties, with our vulnerabilities, our fragilities. And what I'm trying to get at in the, in the chapter on uncertainty is simply to say good poems include it and actual lives include it. That I do not wish to narrow my own experience by pretending that it is more sure of itself than it is. We, one of the great reasons we want art in our lives is to have a way to say yes to the things which are hard to say yes to. Uncertainty is one of them. And what I love about the really great poems, the poems that I keep with me, the poems that help me navigate my life, is that they do not exclude the uncertain. They do not exclude the mysterious. They do not build walls. They build openings. That is a perfect way to end this time we have together, Jane, and to also introduce this final poem that I would like you to read. It's actually the very first poem in your book, and it's called Fado. Please. So a fado, for any of our listeners who might not know what it is, is a Portuguese song of love and longing and fate, uh, which emerged from the life of the docks in Lisbon at the beginning of the 19th century. So it is the singing of the outsiders, the outcasts, the marginalized. Fado. A man reaches close and lifts a quarter from inside a girl's ear. From her hands takes a dove she didn't know was there. Which amazes more, you may wonder. The quarter's serrated murmur against the thumb or the dove's knuckled silence. That he found them, or that she never had. Or that in Portugal, this same half-stopped moment, it's almost dawn, and a woman in a wheelchair is singing a fado that puts every life in the room on one pan of a scale, itself on the other, and the copper bull's balance. I've been speaking with Jane Hirschfield, author of The Beauty, her new collection of poetry, and her new collection of essays, Ten Windows, How Great Poems Transform the World. Jane, thank you so much for being with us. It's been a great pleasure. I'm Roger Houston. You've been listening to New Dimensions Radio. If you want more information on Jane Hirschfield, you can uh, find her easily online or you can find out more on the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Roger Houston. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3548. 
New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.